Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, our special guests are Lila and Carol Ware. Carol and Lila live in Skowhegan, Maine. Like my own family, Lila's family lived in Mount Vernon, Maine. In the summer of 1980, their love story began on a fly fishing date on the Kennebec River in the Forks, Maine. Carol successfully became a master Maine guide in 1989, and Lila followed with her licenses in 1990. Carol's early career was guiding fishermen and hunters at several of Maine's quintessential Maine sporting camps, and together, Carol and Lila managed one of the premier camps in the Rangeley region. As a husband and wife team, Lila and Carol operate Fins and Furs Adventures, an international sports travel and consulting business. They host and promote travel for regional and international fishing destinations and lodges. The Wares pioneered a unique training program to help local recreational enthusiasts obtain their main guides license. Their program has run for 33 consecutive years. In 2020, Carol received the Wiggy Robinson Legendary Maine Guide Award from the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. This is a well-deserved peer recognition of distinguished and exemplary professional Maine guides. Also in 2020, Carol was the first fisherman inducted into the Maine Sports Hall of Fame. Carol has recently published his first book, On the Wrong Side of the River, Stories from a Maine Guide. I am proud to have the great opportunity to have today's special guests, Lila and Carol Ware. Welcome, Lila and Carol. Hi, folks. How <laughs> are you today? Sherry. How are you? Oh, we're wonderful, Lila and Carol. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so proud of the work that you've done to get your first book out. It's been a long time coming, Carol. What do you say? Well, I procrastinated for about 50 years over this, and uh, had lots of time to, to accumulate a lot of this this. Uh, the, the stuff that's in the book. I, uh, I have a, a very dear friend. He has been my best friend since we were 12. And he is a disabled Vietnam veteran, and he has been one of several people who've been after me for years and years and years to start to write the book. So in January of 2020, he called me, and he said, have you started that book yet? And I said, well, no, but I, I've got really gathering my thoughts up and I'm about to start and he said look if you don't get off your fanny and write that book I'm going to die and I'll never get to read it so you better get started I started that afternoon and is he still alive and has he had the chance to read it he, he is he, he got the first copy of the book mission accomplished that's, uh, absolutely. that's wonderful absolutely. well COVID was of course the onset of COVID was that spring and Carol had a lot of time to write so it was a good time yep. timing was yep. everything it, it, I think COVID is as awful as it was in as many negative ways that impacted families and, and people around the world. It, it also opened a lot of doors. And, and this is another example of that. I think that podcasting has been a way for people to feel a little more comfortable, you know, communicating from a distance. And, um, yeah, and it certainly a, allows us to stay connected. But I did, I did get your book, Carol, because you were so generous to get it to me. And my reading style is to put things up, uh, pick things up and put things down. But uh, the chapter I went to almost immediately was the final chapter, uh, which is the chapter regarding Lila. And um, I said, on, you know, uh, on the wrong side of the river in your final chapter, you discuss your impressions of Lila and how you first met. Can you recall that experience for our listeners? Like it was yesterday. Please. I was, uh, the last five years that I worked for someone else, I worked for the Chinbrook Corporation out of Pittsfield. I was a purchasing agent for them. And... They were rebuilding the paper mill in Madison, Maine. And our secretary and Lila were good friends, and Lila had applied for a, a, a job as secretary position for the chief executive order, officer of the mill. And she came down and said hi to my secretary, and she was dressed to the nines, and she, just, she looked great. And we said hi, how are you? And that was pretty much it. And uh, then in, I don't know, a week or so, she was back. She was on her way to meet the guy that she was dating. They were going fishing and so she, had naturally. A, she had a fly rod in her hand and her hair was up in a red bandana and it was a red and gold plaid shirt and a pair of jeans and she was in boots and I saw that fly rod and looked at her and I went crazy <laughs> and um, I just the uh, die was cast yeah the From die there was we went cast fishing. <laughs> and uh, so our first date we went we went fishing and uh, 
we uh, we were up in the Kennebec that morning, and we'd fished the river and sat there and got out of our way just and we were sozzling our feet, and I leaned over and kissed her, and she blushed, which I just thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and uh, the rest, as they say, is I was history. still very innocent then, you know. Right. I'd right. only been married twice, so. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's a fantastic story, and it, it actually kind of mirrors, I think, a way a lot of the fishing couples uh, have met over the years um, okay. that have stayed together. You know, couples that fish together stay together. So I, I like <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, I like that, Mike. Yeah. Put your Sherry, tag on that. Use it yeah, often. Sh- Sherry and I fish a lot, and we always have a good time together, so that's great. So, Carol, uh, you, let's, let's flash back to uh, the late 1980s. You get your guide's license. How did you get your guide's license? I, believe it or not, I started guiding in Quebec. No, how did you get your... Oh, oh yeah, how that's I, right. I'm sorry, how did I get it? Well, I went and pursued the process through the main Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. In those days, uh, you could take all three license tests at once, hunt, fish, and wreck. Uh, which has subsequently changed over the years. And I went down and I got all three licenses and I had really, I'd worked very, very hard to prepare for the test. We're the toughest state in the country to get a guide's license in. And uh, I really, uh, as we instill in the people that participate in our programs, you got, you've got to go in that door of that office and be positive and think you're going you're gonna to get this done. And I did. And, uh, and I told her that I wouldn't. I came back and it was really quite a, uh, it was a Friday, and we didn't have very much time to, to think about it because Saturday, uh, a gentleman who owns a, a set of sporting camps in this part of the state said, did the, the guy at Bozbuck Camps call you? And I said, no. And he said, well, he's, he knows about you, and he's looking for a guy. Monday morning, I went to work at Bozbuck Mountain Camps, um, the upper end of the lake where the big and little McGalloway rivers come into was Iskahos Lake, was shrouded in fog, and the first thing I did when I left the dock with my two customers was get lost in a fog bank. But we managed to make, make our way up the river, and the rest, as they say, is history. That's that's great. So what were your, so your first guiding stint was uh, at Bozbuck, and when did you, how did it all begin from there? Like you were doing trips for them and then did you start to branch out and work for Carol Ware himself or did you stay kind of as a dependent guide, as we say? Uh, I, I stayed at Bozbuck for, I guess, four years, four and a half years. Occasionally when either work was slow or our guests that we'd come to know were going to different lodges, we ventured out occasionally to different lodges. And yeah, we just had a company and take work in other lodges. Where, where there was opportunities and where I wasn't needed at Bozbuck. And that was good. It just kind of gave a chance to get our names out and around and get familiar with the other people in our industry. And it sort of uh, took off from there. And you were living in Skowhegan then? Yes. Yeah. Were you, were you guiding on the Kennebec at all? Yes. Yeah, I was. I guided on the Kennebec whenever time allowed. Um, eventually, Mike, uh, I became an Orvis endorsed guide for two, three year stretches, and we bought a drift boat, and uh, we ran the drift boat on the river for six years. So I can see you in Solon and maybe in Bingham and uh, fishing yep. in that area, maybe up in the forks a little bit. Yep. Down to yes, Augusta. We did. Yeah. yeah, we would down, we'd go down through to Augusta. I also had the Tidewater license eventually, so I could go down and fish below the Edwards Dam, which at that time was where you had to have the saltwater license. Exactly. I think it was when I was, when I got my first drift boat was 1990 something, and they were just getting ready to pull the dam out. And, um, and I got to be one of the first trips down from Waterville to Augusta, uh, drifting that. To, yeah. After they took the dam out, and that was amazing to see what was unearthed uh, when the when oh, the flow oh, dropped. I bet it was. was. I bet it was. Absolutely yeah, it was amazing. amazing. Yeah. So, um, so you and Lila, you, you had the idea to train outdoor enthusiasts to obtain their 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 mm-hmm. main uh, guides license. Tell our listeners yeah. about the early days of forming the course and kind of what the brainchild was behind it. You spoke well, a little bit about taking the test and how hard it was, and I'm sure that must have been a seed that was planted for you. Well, it was, and it was kind of almost by an accident. I, I took a preparatory course. It was an, at the adult ed um, offices here in Skowhegan, and it wasn't particularly good. 
but it was it helped. There were areas where it helped, and uh, the the winter after I got licensed in '89, the fellow who was a director called me and asked me if I would teach that program again. And I said, not me being me, and said, sure, why not? I can do this. And uh, so we started there, and that that lasted a couple of years, and then it was apparent that we were much better off hanging our own shingle out, so as to speak, with this training. And we began to offer the programs, and we began to develop. And I, and I, I suppose, Mike, it started with taking the test that I had gone through and, and, and talking with some of the folks at IFNW. IFNW's mandate for guides is safe trip, legal trip, quality trip. So we could start with that as a base and build around that and build around the information that's necessary to get through this testing process. The, the, not just the map and compass, but a lot more of the, the non-technical is not the word, but like in those days, the second part of the test was a lost person scenario. And then we went from there to the general specifics of the license, of the laws, so forth. And it, I hesitate to say it took on a life of its own, but we just began to build sort of around our personalities, I suppose. But we began to build this base of information. We, very early on in this, <clears throat> excuse me, very early on, decided that it was a great idea for us to continue to be in contact with people who were taking the test. And we did that by saying, listen, you get that test and you get home and you had a chance to digest all of this. Um, send us an email talking about your test experience. To this day, our training manual, which is several inches thick these days, we keep 18 to 20 of those Current. Uh, emails. Current, Current emails. We update them. And we tell people, listen, this is these emails are incredibly important parts of your study process because we can stand up in front of you until we are blue in the face and say, well, this is what your examiners will probably say or look for in this this particular circumstance. These emails are verbatim what the examiner said to one of our candidates. It, it also became important as we learned very quickly, it wasn't about necessarily the legal content of that test. It was helping people learn to deal with their the stress of being test being tested with with the whole we, we help explain the whole environment of the test, um, where they're going to be, how it's going to go, everything from take your hat off when you go in the room and we cover everything to help prepare these people for that entire experience. So the content of the test is a good portion of that, but it's not all of what we talk about. No, and that's so what you're talking about, Lila, is so critical because what allows people's nerves to kind of become lowered is familiarity and not being caught off guard. And you try to eliminate that element. And I know I've sat on both sides of that table. Uh, you know, I've been tested as a candidate and I've also tested as a guide, you know, being on the board myself. And uh, you can tell within a few minutes if someone's prepared or not yes. just from when they walk True. through the door. And True words. We, we tell the same thing to all the candidates. They're going to know immediately if you're prepared. They understand you're going to be nervous. So walk through how to get calm. Yeah. There's amazing amounts of, of uh, confidence that come from knowledge. And we tell them that repeatedly. What, one of the things, Mike, that we like to say to people is this. Listen, we, we don't, we're going to give you information at your disposal. So when you go into that office... I want you to be challenged. I don't want you to be intimidated, but I want you to be challenged. You should be. You should see this as a challenge. And you take it head on, and you take the information that we've provided for you, and away you go. And it looks like it works because my understanding is you have an average of about an 85% pass rate on the yes, first test. On the yep. first test. That's yep. correct. Yep. But that's of people that report back to us, too. Not everybody tests, and not everybody that tests actually gets back in touch with us. But for the people that do get back in touch with us, we that's an accurate representation. And with the recent change in the map and compass testing, it's actually gone up a tick or two. How have they changed it, Lila? I didn't know about that. 
they well, as you may know, the U.S. Geological Survey has retired all of the topographical maps, and they're no longer responsible for mapping. <laughs> all mapping is now done with uh, satellites and digital imagery. Another whole division of something under the NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, is going to be doing mapping. So the department's change in reaction to all of that was your test is now out of the main gazetteer. Wow, I didn't know that. And that's interesting because you should, I mean, I think about it. I don't go into the woods with topographical maps. I go into the <laughs> wood, I go into the woods with the Bible, right? The gazetteer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we all have, I mean, I bet I've gone through 25 of those in my lifetime and possibly more because I ruined the covers on them, even if I put a protector on yeah. it. Yeah. We, yeah. we could have a very long discussion about comparing navigation out of a gazetteer to navigation yeah. on a, a topo map, but we won't do that now. What, one of the, when I, I, I think you know, Mike, I sat on the guides advisory boards, one of the examiners from 91 to 2003, and the concept was the examiner's job was to base your score on what you said. Yes. You wouldn't give any points for anything you didn't say. So it, well, it didn't for until uh, April of 22, um, they were open to pretty much how you'd come in to do this. But now the concept is you bring a current unmarked copy of the Gazetteer with you when you come through the door of this office to take your test. To bring it and on. we will open it to the appropriate page. We will give you the instructions, the to and from instructions from that page. And we insist that you use the compass as a protractor. Got it. So you still orient the map to um, magnetic north and then you... No. no, you don't have to. Oh, okay. What All you, right. What you do, they'll, they'll, the two points that they will give you that are on that map, and instead of typically... Uh, inlets and outlets, which are used by contour lines, it's uh, picnic areas, it's boat launches, it's gorges, it's it the can be town towns, yeah. anything. So they'll give you the to and from, and the to and from is structured so that your line of travel crosses a longitude line. Got it. And in that way, you can use the compass as a protractor measuring that angle and coming up with a true north bearing. I, I totally get it now. So you're using yeah. the gi the given lines on the gazetteer and only giving yeah. them the angle of the offset from that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That takes, that removes the true north and magnetic north right out of it, really. And that it does. It does. Initially, yeah. it was confusing to people because we used to say to people, hey, you have this compass, this lap, uh, this base plate compass. It's a magnetic instrument and can only give you information in magnetic degrees. Oops, oh, all now. of a sudden now, with running this line of travel across the longitude line, when you pick it up, the number that it's giving you is true north. Is true north. Yes, got it. Yeah, that's a great explanation, and clearly you've uh, studied that to the hilt, so... Well, Mike, my, my, yeah, it's, <laughs> we have. Yeah. Well, being on the teaching end of it, you're responsible for understanding it, so that's... Absolutely. That's, yeah. So let's, um, we talked a little bit about your guiding on like the Kennebec and doing a little bit on Bozebuck, but you as a couple ran, was it Bozebuck that you ran? Yes, and, it, yes was it was Bozebuck yep. Mountain Camps. Yes. Let's, talk, let's talk about how that went because you went from being a guide to being a lodge manager and a guide manager, Carol and, and Lila both. How, yes. Yeah, how did that come about? Did someone approach you oh. and say, hey, run the place? The camps were sold and just after our early departure. And the new owners approached us because they had no business and said, we'd like for you to come in and manage this. And unsaid, bring some of those customers back. So we took it on. We told them it was a, a, a lifestyle that we were just thrilled to have and marched right in there. We ended up working from May to November, you know, from 6 in the morning to 11 at night, hmm. seven days a week. <laughs> Which was great fun. Yeah, that was fine. <laughs> and they basically, as Lila said, they had zero business. And so we immediately, and though, again, this this was uh, a while ago, we jumped on the sportsman show circuit. Um, we had great relationships with a lot of the customers who had been there and unfortunately been driven away with terrible service. And those were the people we reached out to. And lo and behold... We turned it around and, and had five great years there. 
So Carol was my guy in charge of personnel because I'm a little quick to be hot. So yep. he had to deal with the people. Um, I did the kitchen. I did the all the ordering, all the buying, the, food, the cabins. The I even learned how to run V-match pine and electricity and plumbing and all the cabins because that was my part-time job and change the oil in the generator and change the oil in the generator <laughs> i could do all of that i loved i loved that experience more than anybody that's could good. ever know yeah that's a beautiful part of the state of maine too that very few people have the chance to go and, and visit and it is beautiful up there i bird hunt up in that area quite a bit with my uh, english okay. centers oh, well yeah. one night we had no clients in camp and Carol took the whole staff over to Errol. There's a dance hall over in Errol, New Hampshire, to get them out and let them let their hair down. He was the designated driver, hmm. and I was sitting out on the dock at Bosbach, and it was probably one o'clock in the morning, and I could hear him coming for miles down the dirt road. <laughs> but just the beauty and the tranquility oh, in that part of the country yeah, is amazing. That that land has changed a lot. We hear Mike. We haven't been back. Um, yeah, just. Just an upset. We haven't been back, but boy, oh boy, to be able to go to sleep at night with the loons singing to you as you went to sleep was just fantastic. Well, one night we got all the customers up about eleven o'clock because the Northern Lights were coming down the Little McGalloway River. It was yeah. stunning, and yeah. we just didn't think they would we were, care if we woke them up. We knew they'd want to see. We that. went down the whole line of cabins and got everybody up that wanted to come and. We had, oh gosh, we had 20 people out there in the parking lot, yeah. I guess, in various stages of it. undress. But. Oh, that's, a, that's a wonderful story. It's been a while since I've seen the Northern Lights because we just have so much light pollution in this area. That you do have to go to, I mean, you see glimpses of it, but when you're in a place like Northern Rangeley or up around um, Cocajo and Golden Road, that's when the Northern Lights really put on a, a first-class act. That's the place and time to yep. see them, for sure. sure. Chris, we get to see them when we travel, but yes, yeah, when you're going up to Labrador is what you're saying, Lilo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labrador and Quebec. So let's talk about that because actually that's my next question. Uh, so you're you're working out of Bozbuck. You're probably having a lot of good conversations with people about some of the your experiences traveling, and then it occurs to you maybe we should start an international travel business. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it yeah. kind of wasn't that obvious to us at the moment, yeah. but. In 1987, Mike, we were, 86, I'm sorry, we decided that we were going to go someplace and take a big time trip. So we went to the Broadback River Fishing Camps, uh, which is in the interior of Quebec. And the Broadback River runs out into James Bay eventually. And so we went up kind of not knowing what we were going to get into. A couple of friends that fished it the year before and... We went up, and the first thing we did, well, the first thing Lila did, about 20 minutes in opening day, was catch yeah. a six-and-a-quarter-pound brook trout. Yeah. And uh, your gut I think, just... I think your best that week was five. I think I was a measly mm. five pounds, yeah. So I so. was taken with the place immediately. Yeah. So but. we just fell in love with the place. The owner became one of our dearest friends till the day he died. And uh, we got... That was in September of 80... Uh, August of 86. So we got home, and... We, with the way we are fond of describing this, in, in October, we thought about this a while. And in October, one night, I think it was fueled by a couple of glasses of a, a great Chardonnay, we called Richard Demers was his name. We called Richard and we said, Richard, we have this idea. We think that we could sell enough business for you so that we could come up and fish for a week for free every year. And that's all I was ever supposed to be, honest to God. We took our commissions in fishing days. Never took a dime from him. Well, Richard, when I interviewed him, we made the comment, Richard, being the quintessential crazy Frenchman, and I say that with great amounts of respect, we proposed this to him, and he said, well, he said, what the hell me, I done dumber things. And away we went. And... We took a booth, the Augusta Sportsman Show, again, like we knew what we were doing, and it just took off. Right place, the right time, whatever it was, but it took off, and away we went. And we had 12 fantastic years up there. And originally, that was all the travel we had ever contemplated, and then only by accident, really. But then people who traveled with us began to call and say, well, that's nice that you do brook trout, but I'd like to take a caribou hunt. Who do you know that does that? 
So we would find people, interview them, travel to see them. If we liked what we saw, we'd see if they'd do a deal with us so that we could come up and maintain that standard by hunting with them regularly or fishing with them regularly. Mm -hmm. And then we just began to add people who ultimately became friends into that portfolio of recommended travel. And, and by saying to people, yeah, listen, we've, we've been here, this is what you'll find, gave us uh, a tremendous amount of credibility. If we were to say to somebody, okay, here's the caribou camp, and this is one of the camps you'll be going to, and if you go up the, law, up the, the, the hill about uh, uh, maybe 100 feet behind the camps, there's an outhouse up there. Well, it's because we've been there and seen it. And that gave us credibility, gave us acceptance with these people, and they trusted us. We also spent a lot of time, because we had been crossing the border regularly with fishermen, we spent a lot of time getting ready to talk with people about crossing the border with firearms. Mm -hmm. We had, I've had Canadians customs officials say, wow, where'd you get these forms? We can't even get those, <laughs> because we got so many in the beginning. The, the game permits. Yeah. So we just did our homework constantly. Yeah, and that's what the people were paying for. And um, I, I think we're actually at a good spot. We take a break in the middle of the podcast, Lila and Carol, and I think we're in a good spot to just take a quick break because when we okay. come back, when we come back, I'm going to ask you uh, a lot of in-depth questions about uh, the travel adventure business because I think you were really part of the uh, evolution of it, especially in Maine. I think we were. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so we'll come back after a short break and we'll pick up on that. Thank you. Thanks. On this Flyline flashback, I quote from the New England Historical Society regarding Cornelia Flyrod Crosby. By the mid-1890s, she worked in banks in the winter when her health permitted and fished in the summer. She caught 2,500 trout in the summer of 1893, the happiest and best year of her life. She probably released most of them as she was one of the first advocates for catch and release fishing. In 1897, the Maine Fish and Game Association hired her to lobby the Maine State Legislature for a state-run system to register the state's hunting and fishing guides. On March 19, 1897, the Maine Legislature passed the bill requiring guides to buy a $1 license every year and file a one-page annual report. Maine registered 1,316 guides that year and gave Cornelia Fly Rod Crosby guide license number one. And now let's return to the second part of our show. Mike, I'll, I'll tell you, share something. Going back to the, the Wiggy Robinson um, Legendary Guide Award, uh, I was talking with Tim Peabody, who was the deputy, um, commissioner, deputy commissioner in the state of Maine. And one of us, was it you? Was I, talking, was, yeah. I was talking to him. Well, he, and, and, he called me to tell me that Carol was going to get this award, but it was COVID and it was going to be on the Zoom meeting. So he and I were talking about getting the Zoom meeting set up. And he said, Lila, Tim Peabody says, Lila, you know, I recognize this is really a two-person award. Sure is. Not, not anybody gets sure. this award without having, you know, a team. My, my only job about the Zoom meeting where he's going to get the award was to get him on the meeting. And this is a regular meeting of, I think, the Maine Professional Guides Association mm -hmm. and the yep. commissioner. And I told Carol that the commissioner was going to have some comments about women in the outdoors, something that really intrigued me. And I, I thought it would benefit if he would listen so he would get that perspective of women in the outdoors. <laughs> so we're out there. And we're listening, and she's going through all her little slides and everything. And he says, I don't, I don't want to listen to this. And I said, yes, you do. Come on, come on, just listen to this. No, I, I said, just, just be patient. Well, she's getting closer, and I can see her slide deck coming, and she's getting closer. And then he says, i got to go to the bathroom. And I said, no, you don't. He said, well, yes, I do. And I said, well, you can't. And he said, well, why not? I said, just sit down and be patient. <laughs> and about that time, she'd gotten to the slide about the Wiggy Robinson Award. Yeah. And he looked at it, and he looked at me. And thankfully, I had written down three things in front of him that he could think to say when he realized that he was getting that mm -hmm. award. I said, talk about your book. 
talk about something? I forget the yeah. three things I'd written I, down. But. I was com- completely, I, my eyes, I, I teared up and I, I just was completely overwhelmed. Well, Best I, I surprise really I ever got on him, yeah. except the other one coming out of Bo's butt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as one, you know, as someone who works in your industry and someone who shares your reputation of, uh, you know, or appreciates your reputation, I should say, I can't think of someone that could deserve it better. I think it's great thank that you, you got it. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a two-person award, but well, thank no, you so much. It's your yeah. award, and I agree. Yeah. I, you spent all the time guiding those people. <laughs> Yeah, but also it takes two because Carol, he needs you to to be supportive, just emotionally and and just in general. So, but it's nice yeah. to have someone that says, "Oh, how was your day of fishing today, Carol?" And then Carol <laughs> says, "Well, if I had touched a rod, I would call it fishing, Lila. But I was actually guiding today." That's <laughs> right. That's, like, people don't get that. When we were at Bozbot in November deer season, it was towards the end of the month, and I had three, four, I think, hunters from away. Not that there's anything wrong with that. They were, they were difficult. They had, you know, you had to keep an eye on them. And the last day, the Saturday, I came back and walked into our camp at, at Bozbuck. Lyle said, so how, how'd the day go? And I said, it didn't go at all. The, the deer hunters are driving me nuts. I'm only going to guide deer hunters one more year and then I'm done. She said, no, you're not. You're done today. And I wasn't. I've guided another deer hunter. But we've we were leaving camp that day, and they had gone home early because oh, they had to travel home. And I'm driving, and Carol's sitting in the passenger seat with his gun and shells in hand, driving along, driving along. He's sound asleep. Oh, He's oh, sound like asleep. And I put on the brakes rather firmly, and I said, right there, right there, right there. <laughs> and the shells went everywhere. <laughs> I tried, tried to get the door open. The cartridges were flying. I almost dropped the gun. She's outside the door of the truck in convulsions, laughing at this. Laughing, laughing. That's our life. Our life is laughing and wanting others to laugh. So we do. We enjoy that a lot. It's (laughs) certainly been a recipe for your health. You you both look fantastic if you... uh, if our listeners could see you, they would be very impressed with uh, how you've how you've aged. So, uh, back to some of the international stuff, if you don't mind. That, that was a wonderful story that you shared, by the way, about uh, the Wiggy Robinson Award. I was going to ask you about that, but you answered it for us already. That was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lila. Oh, you're um, welcome. When when you were uh, go, you said the Broadback River was it? Yes. Broadback River fishing camps. Yes. Tell me about how you got going with Mackenzie. Uh. <laughs> we uh, we were at a sportsman show in Pennsylvania, and it was a four or five day show, and it was nuts, and there was crowded. Everybody was all the exhibits were just whipped by day four, so we went out to eat at one of the restaurants handy to the facility, and when we sat down, there was a couple sitting immediately beyond us uh, who had just gotten there, and the guy was sitting to my back. And I think they'd apparently, they were exhibitors, and they apparently had the same kind of day that we'd had. And so the food server came over and said to him, Sir, may I get you a drink? And he said, I'll have a gallon of beer. And I thought, Which boy, here's somebody to- else has been where I was. So that struck mm-hmm. His name was uh, Francois Boulet, and he was working for Paul Est- uh, Ostigi, who owns Mackenzie River Lodge and uh, Inukshuk Char Lodge on Ungava Bay. And he uh, spoke to Paul, and he said, you ought to talk to these folks. And we did, and that was, God, I don't know, 15 or 16 years ago. And uh, we've been up there. I've been up there probably more than Lila, but I've been there probably really 14 or 15 times. Spectacular fishery. Just absolutely amazing. Tell me about one of your trips up there, Carol. I know the river myself, so let's chat a little bit just as mutual guides. What's your favorite favorite hole? Oh, boy. Um... I'm pretty partial. I'm pretty, believe it or not, I'm pretty partial to the top rapid, but I think going down to the uh, the outlet where we get what they call the, the lower rapid, the third rapid, where the Mackenzie dumps out into another body of water, um, that's a fantastic landlocked salmon spot. And I had I was down there with Paul and another customer several years ago, and I was walking along the edge of the shore to get down to where I I wouldn't be in their way. And I look, and here's a red. In the water, about a foot deep, here's a red, about the size of a washtub. 
And I said, holy smokes, there's some fish here. And within minutes, had a nine-pound landlock on the end of the leader. So, it's, Yeah, and uh, to the listening audience, a red is a fish's nest for laying its eggs. Yes, good one. Is, yeah. the, is that the same pool where that great big stonefly was on the tip of my rod? No, the stonefly was up at what they called the, the, the pond. Okay. The, the first run of, when you come around the corner from the, the, the point where the Mackenzie River Lodge camp sit, runs down through there, and you come, there's a big pond down there that's a quarter of a mile across, and on that point, the Mackenzie River has the biggest stoneflies I've ever seen in my life. They were, the one that was on the, t I didn't know what it was, put the rod tip down there. It had to have been three and a half inches long. Oh, it was giant, huge. Giant like Huge. Yeah, so I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick story about stoneflies, Lila, since you are, you're affectionate about them. Yes. Uh, I was fishing uh, first, second, third pool, which is in the upper river, on mm. river right, and yeah. I kept, getting a flash of a big salmon that just would follow the fly but not take it and I you know I was with a young guide I was assigned a young guide for the whole week Paul wanted me to work with him because he wanted us to share you know he wanted me to help guide him as well as him guide me and I said I said <clears throat> I think we should try nymphing here and he just uh, really didn't know much about it so I hooked up a nymphing rig and I stood down below the pool and threw up into it and it was the first drift, and I had a, about a seven-pounder on, landed wow. that one, and we got three others, one bang, bang, bang. And this was in June on stonefly nymphs. And I don't think those fish had seen a hook in two years because of the pandemic. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh absolutely. Gosh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Wasn't that exciting, though? Oh, it was the best. And the part that I wasn't prepared for was after, I think, the third fish, my arm was so worn out that I was done for the day. <laughs> I mean, wow. I, you catch a nine-pound landlocked salmon in that river, in that moving water, and it's going to put up a 20-minute fight anyhow. And then yep. you multiply that times three, oh, and boy, yeah. unless you're the Incredible Hulk, uh, you're, you're, you're done for the day after that. I know I was. Those river fish are so strong, so, so powerful, just being in that current all the time. So the beauty of marketing for a McKinsey River Lodge is you get people there once and they're automatically going to go back. They're going to go back. So when are you, no, I won't yeah, ask you. When you're I honor. am. T 2024 is when I'm going back in, oh, okay. in, in August. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I bet you'll agree with me when I say this. We I, I've said this numerous times last weekend to people. McKenzie River is one of those unusual fisheries where when you put a fly line on the water, you better hang on and you better be paying attention because you never know. I, I have uh, my best brook trout on the Mackenzie was seven and a quarter. Uh, I've caught bigger fish on over at Osprey in, in Labrador, but boy, those fish up there are just beautiful. And yeah. it, I think what's also special about it is, you know, to Lila's point, if you go once, uh, I had the spring experience, and the second time I go back, I'm going to have an August experience. Uh, and that, and that's the same, yeah, and that's the same, you know, if you've had an August experience and you want to have a different experience, you don't, you're not going to have the same experience just by virtue of the fact you're at the same lodge. Exactly, when, exactly. In, there in August, Mike, the fish get moved around a little bit, but you're still, the, the, the salmon is still there, the bigger brook trout is still there, they'll be all lit up, um, and it just, the, 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 there's not much of the dynamic that changes. Part of it, you can say, I have help here doing this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. This is Riffle. Who is, Riffle is an 80-pound elephant disguised as a black lab. And he's, I, a good, he's, he's a hell of a hunter. He's a good boy. And for the... For the listening audience, Carol's just moving his computer to show us the dog, but uh, the dog's head is probably putting 25 pounds of pressure on uh, on Carol's shoulder as if to say, please pay attention to me and not that computer, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> this, enough that we're spoiling our dog, but this is sometimes how we sleep. Yes, true. <laughs> Yeah. That's how we sleep. We have two English setters, and thank, yeah. it's great that Sherry's only five feet tall because they take advantage of that cavity at the bottom of her side I of the bet bed. They do. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Hey, Lila, I want to um, I want to throw back to something that you talked about earlier. We talked a little bit about the Wiggy uh, Robinson um, Award that Carol received in 2020, but I think 2020 was also a big year for a couple of other reasons. Do you can well, you kind of yeah. Let me start by giving you what the impact was to me. 
we had to have a carpenter come in and enlarge the doorway in every room of this house because of Carol's head. It got a little <laughs> swollen that year. Um, he he did get the Wiggy Robinson Award, which was remarkable. Yeah. Um, but beginning with the Broadback River, we began to collect fly fishing awards, catch and release awards. They were line class records for fly fishing. And it gave us a nice parchment to frame and put in the booth and a patch to wear about a world record. These records are sanctioned by the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame in Haywood, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yeah. So we got those, and we both had some. And he, you know, along about 24 or 5 of these world records, Carol, being the competitor that he is, set his cap on 50. He wanted 50 of these world records. Well, lo and behold, although he now has 52 three. or 3, yeah. he made 50. And unbeknownst to us, someone put his name into nomination for the Maine Sports Hall of Fame. Now, sports in their connotation was always track records, football records, baseball records, you know, all well-documented sanctioned records. But here we have a fisherman wanting to be in the Sports Hall of Fame. And Green. Bill Green. Bill Green. Bill Green, Bill Green calls the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, and they said, oh, yeah, we know Carol. We've got his records right here. He's, he's, he's right. He, and they verified everything back and forth. So on behalf of all sportsmen, including fishermen and hunters in the state of Maine, Carol was the first inductee to the Maine Sports Hall of Fame as a fly fisherman, which was remarkable. It was a very mm -hmm. formal event. He had to get a tuxedo. He wanted to wear his fly fishing vest under it, and I had to say no to that one. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah but it was in Merrill Auditorium in Portland. It was quite formal, and, mm. the, and the silver cup thing that they gave yeah. you the award is just Beautiful. huge yeah. and and quite it's quite the honor i didn't realize what it was until after the day um he was inducted with a female boxer that we knew who'd been a three or four time national five. champion five time national champion in boxing matt, um, millen, used to matt millen that played, played for, for the, the patriots, patriots. Yeah. so yep. he went in with a bunch of people that was really remarkable so yes that was the second of our big three awards that year. And I guess the third one was actually the release of his book yeah. that we that he wrote. I edited, but he wrote. <laughs> yeah, so, Carol, about your book, um, you know, that was your first book, and that's a, that's a huge mountain to climb. Tell me about, you know, what did you learn about writing your first I've never written a book, so give me some advice as a well, potential writer. Um, my... A very good friend of mine, one of the two fellows we own our camp up the Fox with, is a retired educator and is, has uh, proofwritten several books for other people. And he said... Proofread, yeah. Proofread, yeah, sorry. And he said, Carol, you, you write exactly like you talk, which I never really... So that was a lot of editing. Of, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it was mostly a matter of sitting down at the computer and just beginning to type and let those memories just sort of roll. And I'd think of an, a moment or an incident that would swing me to something else. And I, uh, I, one of the things that surprised me, Mike, was that uh, in that book I talk a lot about memories of people I've had in my life and have lost, or people who have been, been you know, guiding, who have helped to guide me uh, in, in many ways. And I discovered there was memories that I thought I'd put to bed. I found out I hadn't. I, uh, to this moment, that's still some puts of them, them are up hard. in my throat. Some of them are hard. Yeah. Some of them are, are people that I've lost that were important to me. But it was, it was people. And that's really, if I could pick one word about my book, it would be just people who have impacted my life and given me, whether it was years and years and years or moments, you know. I do, and that's 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 what this podcast is all about. Is it's about people again? Like I say, I, I think that most people, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't even fish alone anymore. I haven't fished alone in ten years because I don't go out to fish. I go out to spend time with people. Absolutely. And, and I think the other thing that you said that really resonates with me is how you were guiding people, but they were guiding you. 
Um, and, and that happens. I can think of a number of my clients, one in particular who is on the board of directors for my life. Uh, nothing happens without me checking in with Bert. And, oh, you yeah. know, big, big decisions, tough decisions, uh, life decisions. They, I mean, yep. this is this is a guy that writes me checks, and I'm here. I am asking him questions. So, um, yeah, that's and that's, that's that's one of the many things that we get as guides. We talk about the guides teaching people, giving people this, but we get from people all the time. And if you want, you aren't doing it right. Yeah, and I think that as you know, you develop as a guide because you have to learn skill sets to adapt to different personality types. Oh boy, you bet. And I sometimes will be you know, in the truck riding to where we're going fishing and within 10 minutes I have to like reset my levels because I've heard a few things come out of their mouth and I say, oh, okay, yeah. the, these are the things I'm not gonna bring up today. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. Or, uh, you know, okay, this is the kind of guy that I really don't wanna spend the day with, but I'm going to, so let's just put the best foot forward. And then there's other people that I think, Oh my lord! This is such a gift. I'm so glad to oh, meet yeah. them. I would take them fishing oh, for free. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. You know, and we, what happens is they come several years in a row. Now they're friends. You begin to feel guilty about charging them to take them fishing because <laughs> you're just going fishing with these people. It's it's remarkable the relationships that you can build. We have we saw we have the group of fishermen used to come to Bozeman. We just lost one of those guys. Yep, by the yep. way. Uh, we see them there every year at, at, at the show in, in Marlboro, and dear, dear friends. You know, it was the first. It was the first guiding clients I had at Bosebug. There were five fishermen, uh, two really good ones, two medium ones, and one that had a bum knee but loved his rods and his cigars. So yeah, there you go. What a great crew it was. Yeah. Um, love them, love them, love them. Yeah, we always tell the folks who sit in our programs, look. You're going to have to, first things first, you just mentioned it. The, the customers have the advantage because you're only having to deal, they have to deal with one personality, you have to deal with multiple personalities. We have to wear a lot of hats as guides. And the, the range of those almost endless, everything from a medic to a, a counselor. I, I liken us to bartenders. Absolutely. They'll tell us amazingly personal things sometimes. Uh, Weathermen. Fishing. Weathermen. They always want to know what's the weather going to be tomorrow when you're 96 miles in the woods and have no communication. Um, we we have to be medics because I'm fond of saying they fall in, down, up, and out. So we have a lot of – and we have to be the hunting and the fishing expert. So it's, it's fun, though. It is fun. I wouldn't ever have changed – wouldn't ever have changed this. Can I – do we have time for me to tell you a quick story? Absolutely, Carol. You, you, we have you for the whole day. Okay. Uh-oh. Gee, you guys are in a tough spot. So we decide that we're going to represent the Broadback River fishing camps. I had never – I come from uh, – In uh, you read it in the book – three or uh, four generations of woodsmen and guides and school teachers and, and so forth. I never had any interest in being a guide. So when we decided that we were going to work with the Broadback River Fishing Camps, the owner said... In that second year when we yeah, went back. Yeah, the second year we went back. Richard said, come on up and spend the month up here learning learn the area. And I said, uh, privately, I said, oh, geez. Uh, well, okay, so I go up, and opening morning, my first day on the Broadback uh, as a guide, I had two fishermen from upstate New York. And the Broadback River fishing camps set right on a big bay, and about 400 yards across the bay was the mouth of the river where it left the bay. And we got, got them and got their gear on the boat, and I wasn't sure I was going to like this. And we went, like I didn't go 150 yards, honest to God, and I knew this was what I wanted to do. Bang, like somebody hit me right in the face. And uh, I just have never looked back. I've been so blessed. And blessed to have her with me to, you know, to, to share this, this journey. Well, that, that is a wonderful story, Carol, and thank you for sharing it. I think it's really, I mean, I, when I was guiding full-time, I felt like I had the greatest job on earth. Oh, gosh, yes. The best yeah. office in the world. Best, best office in the world, and, you know, you have the, the, you got the best surroundings around you, and sure there's days where it's cold, and there's, sure there's days where there's wind, and sure there's days when the fish don't cooperate, but I always found that I was able to turn around a bad day with instruction and history. 
Uh, instruction was something I'd say, I, there's a lot of things I can't control, but I can make you a better caster and I can make you a better fisherman and I can, you'll leave here knowing more about this area and this river and this territory than when you arrived this morning. Absolutely. And, you know, I, can, I can show them the fiddleheads and say that's what they are, the trilliums. It's just, we have an, uh, an amazing resource here in Maine of things that we can teach people and talk to them about. No other guys would be bored. No, and I mean, I always get a kick out of it when uh, you look up at the clouds and you see the, the, the mackerel scales and you say, there's going to be rain in 24 hours. And they say, how do you know that? And you go, well, that's a sign that has never failed me right there. And it's yeah. true. Yeah. It yeah. is true. Yeah. It is true. Yeah. And those are little things that give you credibility with your clients, and it makes them they make me feel safe when they know that there was someone that can get them out of trouble if they get in trouble. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, they they have to be legal. More more importantly, they have to be safe, and they have to be legal, and they they have to follow your instructions sometimes in spite of themselves. But it's it's so nice at the end of the day when and you've had them and I've had them and somebody comes back and says. This was this was just exactly the day I had hoped for with my son. Yeah. Uh, that, oh, oh boy. Giving him a gift. Yeah, and that that actually is the the ultimate tip. You know, when you hear that, it's even worth more than money to know that you did your job. You yes. know, and you exceeded their expectations. You you uh, you hit the mark for them. That's that's everything that we're always trying to aspire for as guides. You can't be a guide unless you're someone that wants to give. Yeah, we say to people in the classrooms, look. If you're not going to be passionate about this, don't go take the test. We'll make just by being here for two and a half days. We'll make better woodsmen out of you. But don't go take the test. Be passionate. Be challenged. Don't be intimidated. But be passionate about this and the gift that you have to share with people. Smarter words have never been spoken, Carol. It's well, true. I'm not sure about that, but I must have been close. I will tell you, every class hears that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, they do. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we've actually had many people, not many, but we've had some people who, after a half a day of listening to what we call the preliminary stuff, they know that's not, guiding is not for them. They'll just know it. And yeah. we had one gentleman come and listen to about, 30 minutes of it. He was a minister, and he just said, I don't think this is going to be for me. So, But I've also known people that have taken your class and other classes similar that they take it for their own personal growth. They never have any uh, aspirations of getting a guide's license. They just want to know more about what what a guide has to go through, and they want to learn all about the weather reading and uh, map and compass and all that. And, and I think they never have any illusion of getting a – even if they do get their license, it's almost just like a personal milestone. And I bet yeah. there's been exactly. a lot of people that have come through your, through your training. Yeah. I think about 15% of our folks might come through for what we call personal enrichment. We take we take some of the same skills that we present to these adults, and we work with some of the students in the outdoor programs here in Skowhegan. Um, high school Soren kids Soren, and junior high school kids. Soren Seren runs an outdoor program here, and he invites us over. We love to do navigation with them. Just share, share knowledge, give all the time. It's fun. It is, and it's you know it's it's when I. <clears throat> Excuse me. I like to say to, to people, when you put that patch on, whether you like it or you don't like it, you become part of a tradition that's over 100 years old. And with that comes a very distinct responsibility. We are stewards of Maine and its resources. Yeah, and we're supposed to represent the best of the best. Absolutely. Well, because because that patch is recognized as being among the best, you know, we should live up to that standard. A lot of people don't understand that patch recognition issue. They have a personal goal of getting one of those patches, but we have stories of former students who got their license, went on a big hunting trip somewhere, and before you know, over coffee in the fire in the evening, comes out with his wool jacket on, it's got his guide's patch on, he gets offered work before he leaves. <laughs> we, there's a, uh, there's a dozens of those stories, Mike. That patch is so well recognized. And, uh, and we're held, I think as we should be, 
we have wardens whenever we can come to most of our programs to talk about the people who are participating about the relationship between guides and game wardens. And the game wardens, the game wardens will very often say, look, as guides, we hold you to a different standard than we do John Q. Citizens. They'll the acknowledge, public. maybe they shouldn't, but they kind of do because they expect more out of us. They know we should be capable of delivering more. And it's a two-way street. Yes, it is. They say when there's that trust factor there, you're going to get information if you need it about where the birds are holding or where the moose is or where the fish are. So it's a good, it's a good conversation. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, they don't let you off lightly if you're short one life jacket like they would a normal civilian from out of state right. in a canoe. Yeah, no. Yeah, right, right. Story, Mike, again, just related to that. A fellow named Glenn Pratt was a sergeant with the department was the departmental chair of the Maine Guides Advisory Board. And uh, Glenn and I had known each other for a while. We get along very well. We were due to sit together in Augusta and test the, for the boards the next day. I had some people that wanted to, if you can imagine this, I have to be careful where I said, they wanted to bass fish, and that's okay. So I said, good, we'll get down to the Belgrades. So we're having a lovely day on the water down there in the Belgrades, and I look up, and here comes the warden the warden uh, boat across the lake. And there's three wardens in it. One of them is Glenn. And he comes over and stops, and we chat for a minute. And I said, Glenn, would you like the guys to show your licenses? And he said, no, no. If they're with you, we don't have to worry about them. He said, uh, I'll see you in Augusta in the morning. So on we went and get down there the next morning, and he and I were the first two people there. And he said, Carol, do you mind if I tell you something? Or ask you to ask, do a favor. Ask you, oh, yeah. He said, ask you to do me a favor. And I said, sure, what can I do? And he said, register your boat. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Boy, that was. I, I wanted to, I just felt like the village idiot, you know, just. But I registered the boat when I got home that afternoon. So. Well, I, I think, you know, just in speaking with a few people recently uh, related to the podcast and, you know, who are guides, I think that the main warden service has gotten, they're as good as they've ever been right now. I do. Oh, I do. fabulous. They are yeah. fabulous. They're the best search and rescue professionals probably, certainly North America, maybe any place in the world. But, um, and you know, the thing is, you know that they they have to deal probably more often than they'd like to with people who are the biggest, I'll be nice and say idiots, in the world. That's fair. Yeah, they do. They have a challenging job. They're the ones that get up in the middle of the night when someone hits a moose on a road. Um, yep. They're the ones that deal with, a, with an abandoned uh, infant animal that is, uh, you know, in someone's yard. They just, they, you can watch uh, yep. Northwoods, what's the show on? on Northwoods North Law. Law. Yeah. Northwoods Law. You, do you know how wide, highly regarded that is nationwide? Oh, People yeah. love that show. Sure. I yeah. thoroughly loved it when our guys yeah. were yeah, totally it's, it's, it's a, the show. It's, it's a tough. It's tougher, I think, than being a policeman in many respects because of the. Well, the, the, it, the in broad. a little town of Skowhegan, we have a police force of six or seven, where we've got one warden that covers this town and about six other towns. Yeah. So, yeah. the area they cover, and their responsibilities now increase with snowmobiles and. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's yeah. a very difficult job. We love our guys locally. We get to interact with them a lot. I'm proud to say I've got them on all their contacts on my phone. They'll be the first people I call if I have a question. They're great. They're yeah, absolutely they really great. Are. We have two dog handlers right here in the area, too, the canine team members. And the, the time and effort they put in is amazing just for training those dogs. Yeah. And this amazing. is, you're referring to wardens, correct, Lila? Yeah. Correct, yes. I am. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's great. I, I honestly, I'm honestly convinced that we could talk all night long. Okay. Oh, I'm sure we could. <laughs> but, but I don't think we should. I think we've come to a really good place. Uh, I can yeah. I thank you both so much for your service to the state of Maine, Carol, for earning those awards. Congratulations from from the, the from my heart. I think you you deserve everything you. that you've been given, Lila. You, you're a beautiful woman in every way, and, and Carol, I'm sure, lets you know that at every turn in the road. And, every day. Um, you should get a medal for picking me, but I'm not complaining, you know, so here we are. Oh, I like that. That's excellent. But, um, yeah. no, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your evening to, to, oh, to join Thank us on. 
Yeah, our pleasure. And, and again, uh, the listeners for at uh, Flyline Podcast are probably going to get a lot out of listening to this uh, legendary power duo, Carol and Lila Ware. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Good night. Thanks, folks. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM. Riverside FM.